Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day! Woohoo! <laughs> hump day. Hump day! It's the Wednesday edition of the Donaldson Files to be followed by the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom. And tonight we've got uh, Will Riley's going to talk about a recent article he wrote in National Review on the 1619 Project. And there's, and we may also be joined by Charles Love, who's also written the book Race Crazy, which he also details you know, this particular project. And I uh, wanted to let you know, I am the chairman from America PAC. I also am the project director for America's Majority Foundation. And uh, this particular segment will be brought to you by the latest book I've written, America in the Abyss, Will America Survive? Written, available pre-order on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and LibertyHillPressPublishing.com. All of those, so you can order now, and who knows, you'll... And if you want to know the answer to the question, will America survive? Buy the book. All right. Uh, Dr. Riley, glad to have you on the show. Glad to be back on, as always. All right. Okay. The first question I'm going to ask you, because here's the thing, is is that if somebody was to say to you, uh, define critical race theory and then define 1619 Project. So, uh, so the first question I'm going to ask you is, how could you define for a parent critical race theory? Okay, they're really the reason this can get tough, and the left and the right have been going back and forth about it, is that there really are two useful definitions of critical race theory. The first is pretty specific. So, critical race theory is a theory that's taught in colleges of education and law schools. And the core idea of critical race theory is that the entire American system and most of the Western world, what you'd often refer to as facially neutral systems like testing, uh, incarceration for criminals, so on, is set up to oppress members of minority groups. And this is one of a couple of critical theories that all come out of pretty much a Marxist place of thought. So the original critical theory was uh, pretty explicitly communist. And it's the idea that the structure of society is as it is, not to meet the needs of citizens, but to benefit the rich. So, for example, there's something called replication theory. And this is the idea that the schools are designed not to teach all kids everything to know about their society, but to continue kind of the class structure. So a rich kid will go to school that in some sense teaches him how to be a boss, Whereas a poor kid will go to a school with more disciplinary rules that teaches you how to be, quote, unquote, a worker. And critical race theory, in the real sense of that term, takes this idea and adds a racial element. So kind of the rich man is replaced with the white man. We could could get very technical about all this. But that's, that's the sense in which the term is used in kind of legal education. The second sense 
because teachers obviously aren't really teaching all this in like a fourth grade classroom. But the second sense in which people use the term CRT is just that anything that you teach kids or whoever would have certain component ideas. So again, one of those is just a simplified version of the idea that society is set up to oppress. You're either oppressed or you're an oppressor. Um, a second element would be that any gap in performance you see between people, like SAT score differences between Asians and whites and blacks, that's due to racism. And we can, we can get into why that's the theory if you want. Yeah. And the, the third component of kind of simple CRT is the idea of equity, that the solution to this is to have exact proportional representation. So you know you're looking at a non-racist system when there are the same number of whites and blacks and Hispanics in the honors classes. So hopefully that made sense, but there's CRT, kind of the wonky academic idea, and then there's CRT, what you teach in the schools, which is you are oppressed, basically. Yeah, well, let me follow up with that, okay, now, because you wrote about the 1619 Project, and basically the description of CRT is, you know, let me put it this way, it's not, if I'm a parent, going to a school board district, it's not so easily defined, and it can be, as they say, spent. On the other side of the equation, 1619 Project is a specific project. And, and so I'm, the question I'm going to throw back to you would be, is, you know, very quickly, what's the basis of the 1619 Project? How is it being used in the schools? And then I'm going to, after you answer, I'm going to have Charlie, Charles Love join us and give his answer. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, it's good to see Charles has joined us on the line. We just had a good podcast, the three of us together, a couple of days ago. But at any rate, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're absolutely right that CRT is something pretty easy to spin. If you're an ordinary dad and you go to a school board meeting and you say, it looks like we're teaching a lot of oppressor, oppressed pedagogy in this school district, the district is going to say, you don't understand, CRT is this very explicit legal training mechanism. And th th this is just going to be a waste of time. What they're saying when they say we don't, when they say we don't teach CRT, isn't we teach a traditional patriotic phonics-focused curriculum in the school. Instead, they're doing kind of a technical verbal dodge. They're saying this is a critical school, or we teach critical pedagogy, or we teach anti-racism, but that's not quite CRT, and we don't think this this foolish parent will know the difference. That's that's the usual technique there. 1619 is a critical project. I don't know if you'd call it hard CRT in the traditional sense. But the focus of the 1619 Project is the idea that the thing that really defined America is oppressing black people. So everything unique in the USA comes out of slavery. For example, to quote Nicole Hannah-Jones, the Revolutionary War was fought to preserve slavery, that, that sort of thing. Okay, uh, 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 Charles, your thoughts. You know, when somebody, you know, you know can you hear you me? Know, when, how do you? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Yes. All so right. you want, do you so, want me to talk about the 1619 Project and what I think about the, yeah, the just, premise and what they're trying yeah, to do? Yeah, just give me the premise, you know, and then we'll go into depth. With it. What's, you know, what's the objective? What's the premise? Right. It's like Will said. Will does a great job of boiling things down to the base level. It's really simple. Now, you can get into more details. It's simple. Everything that – America has achieved what little they want to admit is an achievement, and every problem that America faces, particularly blacks, but in general, can be linked directly to slavery, period. That's what they're saying. We're reimagining the founding so you understand that everything, including today. So 
that's part of the problem is that where they tell the truth and where you may believe that it's an issue and you can't deny that that was a problem in 1864 and it hurt that family to the next generation in 1894. It's separate from saying that today, if I rob a liquor store, you know, you have to look at the root causes of Charles's, Charles robbing that liquor store, and, and it can be found in slavery. That's basically what the pro- project is saying. All right. Um, well, here's the, the, the other thing that comes into play. Cause you've brought this point, Charles, and I'm going to bring, is that, it, you, know, it, you know, this is probably the issue that, yeah, we need to deal with as far as education goes. And it seems to me that, you know, I just say critical race theory is something that can be, you know, spin in so many different ways. But this is more of a specific course outline, which they have identified as such. And it would appear to me, is this kind of like the critical race theory, you know, is it you know would you say it's related to critical race theory or is this is this is like the practical way of getting it through as critical race theory well i mean in a sense but i i think that's the wrong question wrong way to to go about it because yeah. like will said you can change the de- definition you can be cagey so what i think is that you you attack it head on like a lot of these groups are doing but i me personally I would attack it head on, but I wouldn't call it anything. I wouldn't try to label it. I don't care what you call it. I would say it's problematic. Tell me if this is okay and describe specifically what they're doing because they can't deny that they're doing specifically what they're doing. So are you um, uh, prioritizing race? Are you telling white kids that they have to atone for something? Are you specific? You know, be specific about curriculum you found, things that teachers have said in classroom. Are they saying that? The answer is yes. Is that problematic? I don't really care what the label is. Are you directly teaching right. the curriculum of the 1619 Project? Are you just using the term CRT, or are you doing this bad thing? Hey, hold on to that thought. We're going to follow up with that. Tom Dawson, Dawson Files with Charles Love and Wilfred Riley talking about the 1619 Project. You might know me. I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger is too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, this segment is brought to you by my latest book, America at the Abyss. Will America Survive? You can get this book pre-ordered on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and LibertyHillPressPublishing.com. And okay, right. okay. Now Charles makes a pretty good point, uh, Wilford. You know, instead of trying to you know connect all these dots, just simply look at 1619 Project by itself as in you know, you know as far as the teaching side goes. You know, what's your thoughts? Well, my thoughts coming because, I mean, we've all worked in the actual political space. So, I mean, my thoughts are if I was organizing a strategic group of parents, that's exactly how I would approach the game to some extent. I mean, we would identify particular things like privilege walks where kids are brought out into something like a field and they're made to take two or three steps forward or back based on are you the wrong race, usually white, Um are your parents divorced? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this kind of teaching that's just wildly inappropriate by normal standards. 
um, some of the books that the moms movement has targeted, like the oral sex issue of gender queer, which is a real thing. You know, if you want to get beyond a race, asking kids their sexual identities or sexual preferences. I mean, that's what I would focus on if I were lobbying the mayor. But I, I do think you can talk about this from kind of a philosophical perspective, and we're all pretty well trained to do so. So to me, when you talk about a critical perspective, there are three points that underlie what a critical perspective is. And I don't think I said this especially well earlier on, but they're actually pretty important. One is the idea that this society is institutionally structured to make some people fail, blacks or women, gays, whatever that might be, poor whites sometimes. Uh, point two is that you can tell this just because there are differences in performance. This is the whole Ibram Kendi shtick. Anything that's not at least 14% black we know is racist. And the third is this idea of equity, which sounds like the equality we're used to standing up for and defending. So the 1619 Project comes from a critical place. It has those critical assumptions. So when you look at it, when you attack it, you can definitely attack it individually. You can also attack it as part of this larger institutional structure. I mean, I advise parents groups sometimes, just as I think both of you guys have, and I, I do think there's something to be said for recognizing kind of the broader set of terms. Like anytime someone says equity, they mean the same thing. 1619 is just a very famous example of that. They're using sort of made-up history to call for kind of the changes that the critical theorists want. All right. Now, let me, let's go to those things specifically now, because obviously the key element to me, and, and this is the thing that I find, you know, that – you know, you know, when we're talking about teaching American history, you know, those of us, let's say, who have questions about 1619 or oppose it, you know, I've yet to see anybody, any of us say, well, we're not going to teach slavery. We're not going to teach yeah. evil of slavery. We're not going to, you know, we're going to deal with Jim Crow. It's integral part of the history. But, you know, to me, it's, you know, you know, let's, you know put it in the context of an overall history. Yes, these things happen. But, okay, for example, you know, we can look at 1619, but equally look at 1620, you know, the, you know, Plymouth Rock as, as, as a, let's say, an integral part of American history. Certainly the two of them certainly had a differential between the two. Mm-hmm. And so maybe the question – so maybe the first question I would throw back is but to both of you, and I'll start with you, uh, um, Wilford, is – that how does one strike the balance between the acknowledgement of slavery and American history? Well, I, I think that a good quick answer to that would be to teach history proportionately. So to me, so be true, be honest, to describe the bad things, but also describe the context in which the bad things happened and describe the 70, 80%, as Charles famously said on Fox, we can work out the percentage, but of good things that surround them and talk about those to at least the same extent. So that's one of the things that really stands out about 1619. Um, No one wants wants kind of a warts-free portrayal of their society, but the classic old line is that you want warts and all. You don't want almost all warts. And that's kind of what this is. The argument is, again, that everything unique comes out of historical slavery and race war. 
The reality is, I mean, if you look at the 1861 census, for example, there were already 40 million people in the USA and about 3 million were black. So we contributed greatly. We contributed proportionately. But you can't teach the history of 8% of the country, now 12 or 14% of the country, of course, as all of the history of the country. It's great if students can identify Malcolm X, but it's probably more important that they be able to identify John Adams or the Wright brothers or something like that. So be honest about everything, but, but teach the full sweep of history. Don't focus on a few selected politically correct uh, negatives. And one last quick line there. 1619's argument is, again, sort of clever-sounding but badly flawed. So the argument is, traditionally, we've been teaching sort of this fake commodified history. We want to teach the truth, and people are afraid of it. But the reality is that that's not true. Almost everyone on the center right, including the three of us, wants to teach the truth, slavery but also glorious victory. The people that we're opposing only want to teach about slavery and the other defeats and problems. So the, the situation is almost the opposite of what it's sort of being presented as, and that's important. Okay, Charles, your thoughts? Well, I, I want to, you know, that was a great tie-in, but something you said earlier is important uh, to, to put a finer point on what Wilford said. You said 19, uh, 1619, and then you said 1620 Plymouth Rock, and I write about this in the book as a distinction. Cause you, so you have to ask yourself, I, you know, Will's probably tired of me saying this all the time, but it's so important, the fact that you've got to give them their argument sometimes to point out how silly it is, right? So I say, okay, let's assume you're right. Whitey's bad, right? And we're going to point this out. But weren't the people who came in 1620 white? We check the box and say yes, right? They were white. They were European. Um, eventually, they owned slaves, just not initially. So, and it's one year difference. So you have to ask yourself, but just logically, it seems like, okay, you push it this 1619 thing, those who love the country and push the, the schoolhouse rock rhetoric of Plymouth Rock said 1620, why not just go with that? It's just one year difference, right? It's because there were pillars that led to the ideals that are in one, the other, so that, that's the reason why they leave it out, right? Because because they yeah. could have easily just said the country is, is, is endemically racist and still said it started in 1620 or, you know, 1776. But what led to it was, was the um, people coming during, you know, in, in 1620, not 1619. But they wanted to tie it to slavery. And when they came in 1620, they had no slaves. So from the start, even if you give them their argument about what was what developed over time in the country, the start is not true. So at least what Wilfred said. They say they're spinning, they want true history, but they're tweaking history, moving things around, getting dates wrong, and then eliminating things. Like I always say, there's nothing positive in it. And I would even give it to them if they were saying, you know, we're trying to prove how bad whites were, so we, we're not, we don't have anything positive to say about them. We're trying to make a, we're trying to make a point. Okay, but they have nothing positive to say about black people either. You know, the most glaring uh, omissions are the fact that they don't mention, you know, Benjamin Banneker, or Dr. Daniel Hale Williams or Charles Drew or, you know, pirates. Uh, I mean, the, the Robert Smalls or, you know, the, the blacks who fall for independence of Texas. They don't mention them either. <laughs> so it's wholly all whites are bad, which is not true. And all blacks are oppressed, which is not true. So, you know, to say that they want true history is, 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 is shocking and, and more shocking, not that they say it, that they've convinced a number of people to believe it and then get, laud them with awards for it. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, I here's think a little bit. Here, go, 
Go ahead, Will. Go ahead. You know, Go ahead. One thing that Charles said there that is pretty important also, when he contrasted 1619 and 1620, the 1619 project kind of has to argue that everything in the society developed out of 1619. If you read the essays, for example, they say that competitive capitalism uh, came from slavery, the sale and trading of slaves, so on down the line. But they have to argue this because otherwise there's a very easy out where people could just say, yeah, the country used to be racist in 1620, and it improved a bit through 1776, then the glorious victory over the Confederates in 1865, 1954. But today, all of this is just ancient history. Today, we are as we are. And what the 1619 Project is saying is, no, that's not correct. Everything we have now, the economic system, the patterns of traffic, the diet, that was developed by slavery. It has to all be changed or we're still tainted by this, this legacy of historical slavery. And what I think Charles mm-hmm. is saying is that a lot of that's obviously just not true. Many, there were many more significant dates, like the arrival of the pilgrims and so on down the line, the Louisiana Purchase. Much of this, as much as I love my group, had very little to do with black people at all. Well, let me, let's kind of follow up on that because here's the thing. The basis that it's the basis of capitalism, but if you look at you know, the America in 1861, you know, you basically had a north, you know, the northern states had immense wealth, immense production, <laughs> and, and the question comes into play is that they certainly did it without slave labor. And the South, even with the slave labor, was certainly a far poorer region and actually maintained this even long after the Civil War. So is that kind of a, you know, so why does, you know, so it seems to me that that argument almost would be running into trouble just based on that fact alone. Your thoughts, Will? Yeah, I didn't know if you wanted me or Charles to jump on that. Yeah, I I think that's one of the – so my essay for National Review, we've both written about this pretty seriously. Obviously, Charles has the book out, Race Crazy. But I recently wrote a front-page piece for NR that looked at some of this, and I said I actually did give 1619 some of the argument. Many of their points about slavery itself are a bit exaggerated but well drawn out, largely, largely correct. But they neglect a bunch of other things. Uh, One of them was the historical prevalence of slavery. So, I mean, until the 1800s, this wasn't an American quirk, you know, quote, unquote, the peculiar institution. This was found on almost every continent in the world. Massive Arabic slave trade. Russia had the Chateau Surf, so on down the line. But a second and more important point is that 1619 keeps arguing that slavery brought wealth to the USA. And they do this by listing sort of the individual firms and individual people that got wealthy as a result of slavery, like Elihu Yale, if I have that name correct. The problem, Mm -hmm. though, is what you said, which is that slavery as an institution didn't make the South richer than the rest of the country. Relative to, I guess, the other technologies that were available, relative to, for example, using free Irish laborers, The general argument until kind of the modern woke movement was that slavery made the South a lot poorer. So, I mean, Mark Shulman and Thomas Sowell have have pointed this out in really lengthy, almost wonky detail that in 1860, I mean, the South had 25% of the U.S. white population, you know, half the black population, but 9 or 10% of the factories. That's why they lost the war. So there's a distinction there. Like even looking globally at places like Brazil – you know, Haiti, so on down the line. Slavery has very rarely made any country wealthy. Slavery and serfdom is what we used to have in the Middle Ages. 
sort of feudal peon labor based on these, these captured warriors that, you know, quietly hate you as they hold their rice. That, that's what we had. It made some people wealthy. It probably took from the country in the end. I don't think there's much dispute about that. Can I add but, one thing well, to that? Yeah, yeah go right because, these, because the 1619 Project is saying that, you know, they like to also say that, you know, American capitalism is different from other capitalism. And Amer- the slavery is, you know, they put it on the chattel slavery is uniquely American. So like he just said, not only was it all over the world in different, you know, severity levels and different periods of time, but most of the Africans stolen from Africa did not come to America. So if you cared so much about blacks and about slavery, how do you focus on the 3% and call the 3% that made it to America? Ignore the 97% that went to the uh, Caribbean and Brazil and everywhere else and say it's uniquely American. And 1619 is not even when the first American, first slavery Slaves from Europe, I mean, Africa came here, right? So they ignore the slaves in the 1500s. I mean, forget about Native Americans and all that. They ignore the slaves that were in Florida from the 1500s because they weren't, the, they didn't, they weren't linked to the people they want to link it to. So they're really specific about what they want to focus on, and they gray out everything around it. Now, hold on that thought. We're going to follow up this time. Donaldson, Donaldson, Bob with Charles Love and uh, Wilfred Riley talking about the 1619 Project. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year, one in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, this section is going to be brought to you by my latest book. You can purchase uh, America at the Abyss. Will America Survive? At the following location, Barnes & Noble. You can find it at Amazon.com and also LibertyHillPublishing.com. And you can listen to this show and other great shows on the Bachelor News Radio Network by going to TheBachelorNews.Airtime.Pro. TheBachelorNews.Airtime.Pro. I'm going to you know, kind of you know, throw this in because I think it's you, know, you bring this up in your art in your article for National Review, Wilford. But I'm reminded of a story, and my sister-in-law, you know, went to North Africa with her boyfriend, and she mentioned to me that her boyfriend was approached by an individual with several camels. And made the observation, boy, I would love, you know, if you don't mind, I got three camels. Is she available? Huh. <laughs> and and, and, and it, it kind of, it, yeah, it, it kind of brings that to the point because the point that you make here is that, yes, slavery was worldwide. But in effect, the global slave trade in the early 19th century was ended by the West. The British in the United States Navy 
patrolled the Atlantic to stop the trade. And I've always kind of thought, and I'm going to throw this out and let you two, you know, think, think. I said, if this wasn't, if we had the Pax Ottoman Empire or Pax Sino or Chino versus the Pax Britannica, there's a very good chance slavery would still be in existence today. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, generally when people attack the Western world for being racist or being corrupt or abusing women or something like that, they focus almost exclusively on the West. And the reason for that is that the awkward reality is that if you looked around the world for sexism, you'd find, for example, you'd find plenty here, but you'd find more almost anywhere else. So actually, like, the, that camel story, which is hilarious, by the way, that doesn't even relate yeah. to slavery as much as it does to something else, which is the, the trading and the abuse and the mishandling of women. So, I mean, the idea that you could buy wives, I mean, this was common in Europe. That's what dowry was. It was common in the Middle East. They still do it to some extent. Common in Africa. I mean, friends of mine from places like Nigeria and Ghana will make jokes about, you know, the worth of women in terms of goats or silver or something like that. So this was one of many bad things in our terms that went on all around the world. The abuse of battle captives, uh, the mistreatment of, quote, unquote, the weaker sex. And, yeah, the capturing of people that you didn't much like and selling them to be unpaid workers in in another society. So when you look at slavery in the West, I mean, you certainly see chattel slavery. But the the argument that chattel slavery is unique is nonsensical. That that simply means the slave treated as property. That's what a chattel is. So that was true of Arabic slavery. It was true of medieval serfdom. It was true of African slavery, mostly, so on down the line. What makes the West unique, and I, I don't approve of slavery at all, obviously, so I'm not, I'm not trying to praise and sugarcoat the West here, but what makes the West unique really is that in, Charles might correct this, but in the 1790s, 1800s, a moral movement against slavery developed. We'd seen the idea in the USA and France that people should be free. You saw all these great revolutions. You saw the Enlightenment. So it suddenly became very awkward that you know 20% of the population or so on was made up of what it always had been made up of, sort of these captured, brutalized former enemies. So you started seeing both the development of racism to justify that, modern racism, but more importantly, you started seeing the development of abolitionism. So yeah, what you just described is correct. Slavery ended globally, mostly, because the U.S. and British navies literally took their gunboats and patrolled the ocean and stopped anyone else from selling slaves. So that's kind of one of those great noble stories that a, that a communist probably doesn't want to tell. Uh, Charles, your thoughts? Well, I would just add that uh, I don't know that woman, but I think the going rate is four camels. So don't don't let him go. Don't let her go cheap. And uh, yeah, I, I, no, I just agree with, with Will and would just add that you know he was being you know conservative with with his like 1790 time because you know obviously when you're talking about the founders debate on it and the official abolitionist society that's separate from again 1619 doesn't mention any of this but the Quakers the Quakers were started before I think Vermont. Uh, into slavery in 1777. So there was a move before we even, you know, we, we can talk about the, um, the the Northwest Ordinance and things of that nature. They, there was always a move. Now it got bigger later, but it, to say that everybody was on board is senseless. And the the other thing, one 
final thing I want to say is they, they like to twist it by saying, well, it doesn't matter. You know, Will can speak to that, too. This is a sneaky way, too. They'll say, well, even if you didn't own Slaying yourself or you weren't out there it, a member of the clan or fighting for it, you benefited anyway. But lots of people benefit for things they can't control. You can't blame them for that, right? But they're just saying, yeah. you know, you could be totally against it. They said, you know, it's like uh, 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 an older version of Kendi's anti-racism. Like, unless you're actively fighting against, then you're, you're, you're no different than. So we're going to assume, logically, we're going to believe that you are no different than someone who owns, who treats blacks as property and chases them down when they, run, when they run away. You're no different from them if you've never had anything to do with it and you were openly against it because you benefited indirectly from it. Well, then that would be anybody who traded anything anywhere in the world. Benefited. If you bought the raw materials, you, you, you benefited. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, well, yeah let's kind of you – know, here's the other thing you know, that I find fascinating too because you know, it goes back to something dealing with the South. Uh, And I don't know, yeah. but okay, John Burlow, who works for the Competitive Enterprise Institute, wrote what I thought was one of the best books on George Washington, talked about his entrepreneurship. And it was fascinating. And one of the things that, fast, you know, that you know, John put it in his book, he said, you know, how so far ahead George Washington was in so many areas, like rotation of crops, moving away just from tobacco or cotton as your main and I always thought to myself, in having a diverse farming, agricultural system, and I thought it was interesting because, you know, had that theory been put in place, the South would have been totally different because many of the farming techniques like wheat and all this would have been very difficult to do with slaves, you know, and certainly – and and, I, you know, and it goes back down to the point, you know, what, you know we you know, made earlier, you know, the South – was a poorer section of the country because of that. And the fact that, let's say, they chose to have a single plant, I mean, a single plant, in this case, King Cotton, the basis of their economy was slave labor as the basis of their economy. They didn't progress that much. You know, how much did they progress versus the rest of the country? And by, and I always thought, I mean, this was, you know, an interesting book, you know, looking at George Washington, because he saw, you know, a lot of this happening. He was like, talking about manufacturing, talking about broadening the economy, and it's something that never got through to the rest of the South. Uh, and, and I guess it goes back down to the point that you guys have made earlier. It's, you know, capitalism does not necessarily need slave labor to survive. It, can, it survives very nicely without it. It's, you know, and... And so uh, let me put it, you know, I guess the question I would throw back is the other aspect of it is that, you know, and again, you brought this point up in your essay, Wilfred, is mm-hmm. uh, about the, you know, the sacrifice the Confederate unions made. I mean, literally, you know, over 350,000 Union soldiers died in the end, to, you know, in that battle to free slaves. So it was, I mean, you basically had the industrial might of the South and, and the industrial. And basically, if you look at the cost, as far as the war goes, it was a significant cost. Even on a percentage basis, probably more bloodier than any other war that America has been involved in. And I kind of 
kind of follow up on that, then I have to. So first of all, I think that the, there's not much doubt that the Civil War was the bloodiest American war. I mean, so we lost about 360,000 Union boys, and we lost about two. And, and don't forget these guys; I mean, they were on the wrong side, of course. But we lost about 258,000 uh, Confederates, who are mostly, you know, Shanghai from the plow and told they were fighting a war. So in both the border states in the north and in the southern states, about one in four fighting-age men was either killed or wounded in the war. Because generally in that, that kind of traditional warfare, you multiply the death numbers by four or five to account for the people with shattered legs, blown off kneecaps, lost an arm, so on down the line. So obviously the war had a very significant toll, took a very significant toll, a whole generation of American men. I guess the broader point would be I open up the essay by saying – we all understand that history included tragic incidents, and I named some of the massacres of Native Americans. And then I say, however, I don't think anyone would consider it to be a, a good or a full Native American history curriculum if we learned about that era of history just by learning about four battles that the whites won. So we didn't learn what the Natives were up to before the conquistadors got there. We didn't learn about their wars with essentially the Hispanics, Pizarro and Cortez and so on. Um, we didn't learn about the many native victories like Little Bighorn. We didn't learn about the six million natives alive today. This is this hypothetical curriculum. We just learned about a couple of defeats and moved on. That, that wouldn't be very valid. That wouldn't make a lot of sense. And to me, that's kind of what 1619 is for black history. They discuss slavery. They discuss some atrocities after slavery. And then they try to link many things today to historical slavery. But they don't really discuss the abolitionist movement they don't really discuss the problems in and the glories of the black community today, specifically the black community. They never mention Frederick Douglass, who's probably my favorite American. And they also certainly don't spend a lot of time kind of listing by name the Union soldiers that gave their lives at, you know, Gettysburg and Chancellorsville and Little Bald Knob and so on. So, yeah, all of that is part of real history. There's some good writing in 1619, but it's, it's not real history in the classic sense. It's sort of one side's most extreme interpretation. So the, that's the problem with teaching only that, I think most people would say, most parents would say. Okay, Charles, your thoughts? Wow, not much you can add to that. The one thing I will just say is that you said uh, before Will uh, spoke that they tried to make it seem like uh, uh, capitalism in America wouldn't, wouldn't have been possible without slavery. The 1619 Project says but for slavery, America wouldn't exist. So it's important for people to know that. Okay, yeah. Well, that's, you know, I mean, like I say, I think, because I'm looking, I mean, like I said, I'm looking, it's, you know, you know, you make the point, Frederick Douglass is not mentioned. And yet, to me, he was one of the most crucial in the 19th century mm-hmm. dealing with, you know, I mean, making the argument against slavery. I mean, he didn't, I mean, making the, and the influence that he had including in my understanding his influence over with Lincoln. But this was a very influential man, you know, with both not just with blacks but also with whites, explaining the evil in the immorality of slavery and as he would say, you know, making sure that we fulfilled our obligation under the declaration that all men truly are created equal. And Okay, let me follow this, ask this question, and I'm, I'm going to take, we're going to take a quick break, but I want to kind of think about it. If you look today, uh, where would Mark, you know, based on what we're seeing, the 1619 Project, what's being taught, how would we be looking, you know, how would these historians look at Martha Luther King? 
Uh, this is Tom Donaldson. Donaldson Files with Charles Love, Wilfred Riley here, talking about the the 1619 Project. Thank you, and we'll be right back. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, my upcoming my book that will be released at the end of the month. You can buy it and pre-order it right now on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, America at the Abyss. Will it survive? And you can also get it through LibertyHillPublishing.com. And you can listen to this show and other great shows every day. You can listen to this show every day on the Bastard News Network. Go to thebachelornews.airtime.pro, and this show will be repeated every day, uh, 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., the latest and best shows we have here on the Donaldson Files and the Bachelor News Radio Network. All right. You know, when we left, let me ask you a question. How should we – okay, how do the modern thinkers of the 1619 Project look at Martin Luther King? Okay. Um, Charles, you want to take that? If not, I mean, I, I have a response. No, go ahead. I want to hear. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that Martin Luther King is kind of a tough figure for modern radicals to deal with. And there, there are really kind of two approaches here. So when you ask, what would, what would Nicole Hannah-Jones or someone like this or Ely Mistal from MSNBC or – Professor Crunk, if you spend any time on Twitter and Facebook, what would they think of Martin Luther King? It kind of depends which Martin Luther King, right? So most of them would have considered the real 1950s Martin Luther King to be a straight-up Uncle Tom business person. It's, it's kind of painful to say that, but again, when you look at the 1619 Project didn't mention Frederick Douglass, there also aren't a lot of the classic King lines in there. Like I would have certainly as a black moderate or conservative ended one of those essays with, I still have a dream. You know, these, these legendary things that unify whites and blacks. There, there's not a lot of that at all. So the things King actually said, like I dream of total colorblindness, the sons of slaves and slave owners and sharecroppers, not all of whom would be black, sit, you know, sitting together going to school, that's not very popular today. I think that when people, on the, when people on the black left engage King, what they often do is try to claim that Martin Luther King would have become a Marxist radical had he survived. I don't think that's true. In, in a dark way, it's good we never got a chance to see. I mean, that would have been a horrible thing for American history, you know, the great man taking that route. But, I mean, generally the claim is people will talk about his speech to, for example, a striking union of garbage collectors, and they'll say King was about to take a turn toward Marxism. What, what we're doing is carrying on the legacy of Martin Luther King, the colorblindness, the whites and blacks shouldn't fight. That was the old stuff. So I, I think if you ask Nicole Hannah-Jones, you know, King said this and this and this, how do, you, how do you deal with this? He specifically said, you know, our governmental processes aren't the result of slavery. She would probably say something like, stop quoting dead saints, and then she would try to argue that this is not correct, that King took a logistical, philosophical shift later in life. That would be my guess. 
Okay, uh, Charles, your thoughts. Man, I, I can buy that. It's hard to say because, you know, then there's other things, right? There's, you know, people forget about yeah. the, not that he was the organizer, but he was the speaker. When you talk about the March on Washington, everybody knows the March on Washington, but they forget that it was the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, right? So he did yeah. kind of move to a point where, where, you know, on the one side, if he kept going down that road, because he also wrote that it, 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 he liked it, but it wouldn't work. But he had a kind of a, you know, socialist economic, you know, this, this redistribution uh, kind of tends to some of the things he said. And they were like that part. But then what would they do with the, with the religious beliefs? Right. There's no way unless he did, unless Will's right about the shift, there's no way he would have been on board with today's leftists. This extreme, not just going you know, being antithetical to his dream, but the beliefs of, you know, the, the, the gender, the attacks on religion, those type of things, unless that shifted, you know, so he would be, I agree with you on the economic thing, but everything else you say is crazy. So I don't know. It's kind of, I mean, it's kind of hard to do the what ifs, but it, it Will's right in saying it, it's a very complicated thing to uh, both try to assume. And if he stayed the same today and just fast forwarded 50 years, it would be hard for them to uh, to take him, you know, yeah. on everything he believes because people are complicated and his views were. Yeah. True. Well, I guess the yeah, true. I mean, okay. I mean, the, the, like I said, let me, you know, to me, like I said, I, you're absolutely because I'm always kind of curious with that, and uh, you know, and we certainly over the years have had the great debate of you know what's the place of Booker T. Washington, you know. Uh, let me ask you, because how would you guys view, when you look at, let's say, black leaders, where would you place today, you know, Booker T. Washington? Well, I'm a big Booker T. Washington fan, but see, that's the thing, too. They don't mention any of that, right? So you don't get any yeah. context in what they're delivering, right? So, I mean, this is my problem. With, so this is the time, you know, we're getting close to the MLK holiday and then the whole uh, supposed yeah. black, black History Month. And I kind of... I'm torn when it comes to this stuff, to be honest, and I try not to even bother. It's too much of an uphill fight to climb, so I just stay out of it. But in theory, I think it's bad. Um, like, I think the MLK holiday is technically, because of the way people approach it, it's bad for moving, getting people a full understanding of black, black, whatever black history. I just say history. But because I had a friend call me a couple of days ago excited because his daughter, uh, high school sophomore junior, uh, has reached this new level of, of black consciousness. He's like, I, I want your help in how to kind of harness this and guide it. And I was like, uh-oh, it's going to be some woke stuff. But it wasn't. Fascinating. On her own, her problem was, now I've been going to school for this many years. I go to predominantly white, predominantly white school. And, I'm, and I thought I had a problem with Black History Month and Martin Luther King Day because white teachers were teaching it. But she realized that, no, it's because they only teach what she called the Fantastic Four, right? All we learn is Harriet Tubman, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and I forgot who the four she mentioned. And we don't learn anything else. So they don't really learn about the movement. They don't learn about who made money and achieved, you know, over, uh, above and beyond it. They don't know that about the Rosenwald schools and all the schools in the South. They don't know how the HBCUs were founded because we spent all our time talking about Dr. King. So that, in the sense that they think they're doing good, but it, may, it gives them, puts them in a position where they can just be lazy. So that's why I'm bothered by it. So as far as these other leaders, I wish they got some more play, but I don't think they will. Right, because either because yeah. we're so focused on just the, the the small minute piece that we focus on, or because they were logical back then and they had a uplifting tone to the way they spoke, and that doesn't play to today's left. Well, I mean, it's kind of because February is going to be Black History Month. 
And it seems to me, I mean, and this will be, and I know both of you guys are part of the organization 1776 Unite, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I mean, let's be blunt here. I mean, if there was ever a think tank to have about, you know, a lineup of superstars, that, that that's about, you know, I can't think of too many think tanks that have the superstars that that has. But, but I find it, you know, is this kind of, you know, this to me would be almost that opportunity. Maybe it's a time to, you know, use it as an opportunity to talk about a Booker T. Washington, a Frederick Douglass, and a Martin Luther King, and talk in terms of, you know, the, their place in history and how they influence history and where they were party to, you know, both the positive and the negative. It just, I mean, to me, this would be, you know, this should be what we do with Black History Month, not, you know, to talk about the different people that get ignored throughout the, you know, throughout the rest of the year. Your thoughts? I definitely don't disagree with that. So, I mean, I, I think a couple of things when it comes to discussion of historical figures, like the, the actual question that you asked that we chopped it up, what would have happened to Dr. King is a fascinating one. I think in general, it's a good idea not to idolize men, you know, outside of your, your personal spiritual life, so on down the line. Because all people are just people. I mean, they're very much – they're people I greatly, greatly respect. But I try to focus on individuals' work more than kind of my idealization of their character. So um, I guess on the one hand, if you ever meet anyone that talked to the actual historical black leaders, what I think was sort of the blacks in wax today, like Bob Woodson has, for example, it's interesting. I mean, MLK and JFK were fun guys that liked the ladies. I mean, it's obviously – both of them said things that were ridiculous and things that were brilliant throughout their life. So you never, this is true of anyone, Tupac and Kurt Cobain over on the musical side to be a little more lighthearted, but you never know what anyone would have done in their life. Had they continued, had they lived to their, you know, full five score of years. Um, When it comes to leaders other than MLK, I I think that line about the fantastic four is again, I don't know if it's up there with the, uh, the camel and woman one, but it's, it's funny, and it's something you see as a, as a black man in a business during Black History Month. My personal opinion, I'm a Booker T. Washington guy. What a lot of people don't understand, especially a lot of non-black people, is that there was a huge debate in the black community about which way to go. Once slavery was over, and then the worst Reconstruction was over, and then the worst white excesses in response to Reconstruction were over, kind of fighting it died down. You're talking about 1920. There was a big discussion in the black community about which way to go. Do black people develop technical skills and then beyond that some professions, dentistry and so on, and try to move forward like everybody else did, really, when you think about Chinese Americans? That was, that was Booker T. Or should black people pressure for civil rights in the courts by appealing to elite whites, by setting up organizations like the NAACP? And that was Dubois. And Dubois won essentially, at least in the eyes of history, because history tends to be written by Dubois, by well-educated, you know, upper-middle-class people that have certain tastes. But I think the talented he, when you look, I'm sorry? Oh, yeah, the talented tenth. I'm sorry, yeah. I said the talented tenth. <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. It's the talented tenth that writes books, right? So, I mean, and like you and I both come from working-class environments, but are, are very much in that world to some extent today. We're in one of the right-leading think tanks, but a pretty well-known one. So, I mean, you see who's around you and what schools they mostly went to. But anyway, like getting to the point, I, I think we need a little more Booker T. 
essentially the civil rights vision, the appeal to the white man vision won out virtually 100%. And when you look at problems in a lot of these black communities, like young men often choose not to work, 46% voluntary unemployment rate, mostly voluntary unemployment rate, crime, so on. There are obvious solutions to that. And I mean, Booker T. Washington, you know, Black Men's Athletic Association, the technical colleges, I think offered a lot of those solutions. And this is this is just kind of been forgotten. It's just passed by as a piece of history, sort of a curiosity. Well, it, I'm going to kind of follow up on that. I'm going to I'll get you in here, Charles. Is we get we are running, you know, near the last eight minutes of the show. But I just did kind of an interesting, uh, you know, report. You know, with uh, Jim, our, our Jim Eccles. You know, you know, Will know, Will knows Jim, and and Jim is my age. He's like he's a 70 year old black businessman. He basically. You know, I kind of like, you know, some, there are some people on my show when I, they come on, it, they literally have a resume longer than, let's say, War and Peace. He's one of those guys. He's been in state government everywhere. He's been in military. He was in the reserves. He was in Vietnam. And he, we, I told him, I said, you know, let's talk about the black. And he made a very interesting, you know, we, we did this paper and he did, and he started off talking about black entrepreneurship. And he talked about the, you know, you know, the Oklahoma, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, the tragedy is there, but he said, but he made this, you know, but the point he was making was he said, people don't realize we developed as blacks a black Wall Street, essentially independent, but we developed businesses, you know, business opportunities all the way down the line. It was not like something unknown. It was there. And he said, maybe it's time to start rediscovering that entrepreneurship that we have. Which you know you bring up with Booker T. Washington, and he does. I mean, he does give speeches which he talks about, you know, going back and you know, you know, and having training, you know, going back to, you know, not you know, not you know, and not just the academic side, but also the blue collar side. You know, as he said, there's a lot of money that a lot of people can make being plumbers, and mm-hmm. even owning their own business as plumbers. And and I thought that was an interesting point because it's this. I just feel that it's an aspect that we don't talk about, that black entrepreneurship has been there all along. I mean, first of all, in the, morning, in the old Jim Crow era, they had to become entrepreneurship because they had to, you know, they had to establish their own business. You know, if you're going to be shut out of one business, okay, we're going to compete with you in our community. Uh, Charles, what's your thoughts? Sorry, I think that um... – all that is totally true, and I think that um, it's important to have context. Now, we, we, we spent most of this time talking about the 1619, and obviously there's plenty of problems with that project. But, you know, them wanting to uh, teach true history is good if they really meant it, and they don't. But that's good, right? And I think that we get lost with, um, you know, in trying to push an agenda or certain uh, personalities. And, you know, I don't say this that often, but, but I've, I've been pushed there because Will made a great point. I want to say that, you know, it's a, it's a problem, always a problem when you, you know, create heroes and idolize individuals. That's why, you know, not just the Black History Month, I think for MLK, instead of having a holiday for MLK, I think the, the holiday should be for the movement. Because if the, cause then you learn about all the facets of it. You learn about that pool, you know, that, that crossroad that the black community came to. I know Bob Woodson and some other uh, elder statements I've met 
that said they left the movie because of some of those things. And we learn about that if you focus on all the things that got us where we are as opposed to, you know, just spending a day to talk about the one person. And you can't tear it down. You can't say, well, this person did this. You can't say, Bennett Rustin was gay. <laughs> you know, you, you throw all this up. <laughs> this guy was a black pastor. It doesn't matter because we're talking about the movement. We're talking about all the people who, put, who pushed that direction and made that happen. The politicians, there were politicians who were in support of it. They don't get any credit because it's MLK. So that's what I think. I think that, yeah, you talk about real quickly, they talk about lately because of the anniversary of the Tulsa massacre, but they never want to talk about how we got the wealth that, how they created that wealth that was stolen and the fact that they built it back about neighborhoods in, in Chicago and in DC that had middle-class and upper middle-class blacks that were successful 60, 70 and 80 years ago. And those neighborhoods are now decimated. And we want to talk about how bad they are, but we don't talk about how we achieved in spite of Jim Crow. That could be taught if we looked at the whole community and the whole movement, as opposed to just certain individuals. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good, yeah, that's a point because I, I think, because, you know, you know, I, I'm going to take it to a step further because it's one thing to criticize 1619 Project. It's another thing, but it's you know, beholden on us to sit back and say, okay, here's the history we need to be looking at. It's a history that's got nuances. It's rich, but it's not just simply you know, all or nothing. It's a broad brush in which different groups of people play different roles, a point that you know, you, know, you made in your essay where mm-hmm. I mean, there was so much that different groups of people provided. You know, the Chinese were immigrants basically helped build the you know the trans you know the railroad that went across the country. Uh, yeah, we can you know that, go on down the line. You go ahead. No, that that's the fourth theme of the essay. So we've really, I mean, with the obviously the help of you and Charles, I mean, we've talked through three of them. I mean. Did, was slavery unique? Did slavery really boost the American economy? And what did white and black citizens of goodwill do to fight slavery? And the whole civil rights movement falls into that kind of that kind of larger bag. But the fourth point is just we all built America together to some extent, and that's why stuff like 1619 is to be so negative. Like I asked Jane, who I think both of you guys have met, but my partner, we're just sitting at home talking. And I mentioned the 1619 claim that slavery or conflict between blacks and whites was responsible for everything in American history. And she started laughing and said, Asian immigration. And I mean, you just you just brought that up, that the railroads through the country were built by Chinese laborers who were treated as badly in many cases as African-American or Appalachian laborers at the same time. And those are two distinct groups that I just mentioned. So I, I think that a real history of the United States has to be able to kind of encapsulate that sweep of time that made this one country and one society. And although black people did great things building the country, so did white people and so did Asian Americans. So just as when we, we, we remember the civil rights movement, we should remember more than Martin Luther King. When we think about American history, we should remember more than the civil rights movement. It's a little awkward to say that today, but that's not necessarily the greatest thing that's happened in our history. All of this should be understood and celebrated by a well-educated American. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, real quick, uh, we're in the, uh, uh, Charles, you got a book, Race Crazy. Uh, tell people how you can get a hold of that book. Well, you can find it everywhere you find your books, Amazon, uh, IndieBound, Barnes & Noble. You can DM me on Twitter at CDouglasLove3, and I'll send you a signed copy. <laughs> it's easy to find, Race Crazy, BLM 1619 and the Progressive Racism Movement. And 
And, and well, for this article, the, the essay you wrote will be in the upcoming National Review, and I know it's now available on National Review Online. Yeah, this should be uh, one of the, the first two articles, although well, the placement doesn't really matter, in the upcoming uh, issue of National Review. So if you're, a, if you're a fan of conservative legacy media, definitely NR is still always something worth checking out. All right, thank you very much. This is Tom Donaldson saying good night, and don't forget you can listen to this show anytime on the bachelornews.airtime.pro, bachelornewsairtime.pro, uh, 11 a.m., 4 p.m. This is Tom Donaldson saying thank you very much to our guests, to Charles, to Wilford, and saying good night. that uh, we are now that we now have in the United States 
and I, I'd like to start with a uh, proposition that uh, that uh, then I'd like to get your response. Uh, basically, uh, we have agreement on both sides <clears throat> that this is a good economy. Even the uh, the uh, Biden say that it's because they they had the all the uh, free money that was almost free money that was given away. Uh, earlier this year or last year, and uh, the uh, conservatives, and I'm talking about the uh, the Kudlow uh, and uh, Laffer and and uh, and more group. They say it's a good economy because it still has uh, the elements, the basic elements of the Trump uh, administration, and. Uh, if you talk about the uh, administrative, for the most part, the administrative down uh, cutback as well as the uh, tax uh, policy, that that's really what uh, is behind this. So while they agree on on the on the idea that this is a good economy, they uh, do disagree on where it comes from, and uh, my concern is. Neither of those. Uh, it's the uh, it's the uh, fact that everything is costing so much more than it did before. Seven percent uh, cost of living uh, over a year over year uh, this uh, past December, and uh, and that is shows no sign of uh, of any uh, relief. So. Uh, that's that's where I'd like to start, and uh, Dr. Rare, would you uh, like to comment? Yeah, well, thank you, Larry. <clears throat> Let me begin by saying that as an economist, I think economists have done a great disservice by not teaching people the better workings of the market and how the economy really operates. Right now, we have kind of a difference of opinion on if we had transitory inflation, if it's demand-driven, if it's supply-driven, you know, that it's really a monetary phenomena. And I'm of the school that if you have goods in front of you, maybe three or four cans of something, and you double the amount of money people can pay for them, people are going to bid up those goods, and they're going to increase the, va- the cost, so you're going to have inflation, widespread inflation. It is, and as Milt Friedman used to say many years ago, the great Nobel economist, Inflation is strictly a monetary philosophy. The Fed has been basically bankrolling our federal government for now maybe two or three years, and it started under Trump, so it's not just Biden's fault. And they no longer rely just on tax dollars to pay for programs, but they buy, they issue bonds, they issue, they basically allow the government to print money, and they buy the bonds back for that money to the tune of, trillions of dollars add on to that the big spending that's going on and you're having more dollars chasing either the same amount or fewer goods because of covid and prices all across the board are going to go up and they're going to continue to go up the only way to solve this unfortunately for people and it hurts poor people and middle income people the worst the wealthy don't mind a seven percent increase inflation because it doesn't mean much to them it's going to go on until the Fed and the government decide we've got to put a halt to it. And then we're going to see some adjustments in the stock market. We're going to see some economic slowdown. 
as we get back to kind of real prices and try to ferret out all this in, these inflationary pressures on goods and services? Well, that's that's a very uh, popular opinion in certain circles. Yeah. Um, uh, Tom, do you have anything you want to add to this? Yeah, I, yeah, I think that uh, you know I, I'm going to kind of you know he makes you know David makes a very good point, and I think to me it's going to be interesting is how we can get through these next two or three years without a. Uh, you know, because my biggest fear is not someone. I mean, the Fed's are already now tapering up the QE. You know, they're going to start raising the interest rate, but they can only raise it so much uh, because it adds to the budget deficit. But the question that comes into play is: Will there be an event that will cause a panic and a panic among government officials? In other words, yeah. no matter how you cut the cake, uh, there's going to be an economic slow. It's already happening now. That you're right. seeing this economic slow slowdown, and the question to me is going to be, and this is a, you know, is how do we avoid something of a crash versus a recession? Recession, okay, you know, to me it's the difference between being eight or nine percent unemployment and being fourteen to twenty percent unemployment. You know, both of those scenarios are scenarios that are that definitely do exist, and it's, and the Feds don't have the same leeways that they've had in past recessions, including two thousand and nine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, Larry, let me just add, I think we've done some, we've made some wrong policy decisions on key industries, at least in the last year and a half or two years, which has made inflation easier. You know, we we had an energy independence country, and now we don't anymore, and oil prices are going up. That adds the gas prices. I know in Northern Virginia, where I am, every time I fill up my gas tank, I have a 2002 Civic, a really old car, and I just filled it up last night, and it usually cost me about $22, and it was 39.07. That's a big chunk of change for a car. Imagine someone who has one income, three or four kids, and they they're not seeing their wages raise raised up quickly, but they see that all the costs around them are going up, and it hurts them badly. So I think we need, to Tom's point, I think we need to get the policy right to make the transition easier. And the transition is not made easier by putting more regulations, more taxes, and more burdens on the productive sector so we can allow more largesse being spent by the public sector. Well, we'll come back in a moment, but uh, we're going to take a break. You're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year, one in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism, one in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. 
brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, the second ad for tonight's show will be that this segment is brought to you by my latest book, America at the Abyss, Will America Survive? It will be available at the end of the month, but you can pre-order it at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and LibertyHillPublishing.com. And you can listen to this show every day on the BassamNews.Airtime.Pro, 1 p.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. All right, Larry. Okay, I uh, I guess I'm concerned more about whether we're going to be able to avoid a recession or not. And it it seems, from everything I can see, um, that we're not going to be able to avoid it. That, that it's almost inevitable. Yeah. So, what do you think about that, uh, guys? I would agree with you. That's the point I was just trying to make is that there's a difference between, let's say, having a recession where maybe the unemployment goes up seven or eight, you know, up to maybe no more than seven or eight percent versus, let's say, something more serious like we saw in 2009 and what we saw for the first two or three months of our pandemic where we actually hit as high as 14.4 percent. I think I'm with you. I think I don't see it being avoided having a recession avoided. It's a question, you know, can we do the right policies to make it shorter and recover quicker? Yeah. And that's a big question, especially with the the present leadership that we have. Yeah. And I think, let me just, first off, congratulations on your forthcoming book, Tom. I'm going to order it. I have to find out the answer to that question, if we're going to make it through the abyss or not. So I think it'll be exciting read. But let me just add to your comments that I think, unfortunately, the current administration or the people with, with inside the administration don't really get what American average people are facing. You know, I live in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is the last to suffer. Our housing prices are going up. My next-door neighbor's house sold for $172,000 more than the asking price. You go to some place in rural Minnesota or in Kansas or Nebraska or Louisiana, people don't see those gains there because it's like more like the real world. And I think that, unfortunately, many people in the administration have to get out there with real people and really listen rather than talk about what needs to be done. Well, good luck with that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is one, like I said, to me, there is one interesting hope. And I'm kind of reminded in 2010, you know, when the Republicans took over the Congress. Now, again, and and you did have a sequester. Well, not perfect, but you did have a sequester um, negotiated between John Boehner and Barack Obama, at least restrained some of the spending. Yeah. But the more important aspect is, is that businesses at that point knew, hey, there's going to be no more tax, no more tax increases. You know, we know now what the rules are going to be for the next two or three years. And I, and I think, you know, this you know, may be the only hope that we have is winning the 2022 election. And then the message is going to be sent out. You know, the radical agenda is dead. You know, right. 
RIP, and they may be already dead if Manchin sticks to his gun. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think we, he will because he's so far out there now, and West Virginia has sud- radically moved in its politics that I think if he like gave in or something, he would look like he just gave up, and they would there would be a lot of a lot of heck to pay in Virginia among his constituents. Although I do think it's nice and refreshing, even though we're in different parties, to have somebody guy somebody in the Senate say, well, you know, this accounting is just not right. These are all gimmicks. I mean, these gimmicks have been going on for a long time, and everybody's just pretending in both parties, which I think is bad. But yeah, well, it's right. But yeah, I, I think it's you know the funny thing to me is you know in normal years, John Manchin would still be a big spending liberal because he voted for the trillion dollar plus uh, at the beginning of the year for the coronavirus. Uh, and then he voted for the infrastructure bill. That's like what three trillion dollars extra right there. I yeah. used to be satisfactory. Now today it's, it's underperforming. Yeah, it was like the extra three bill or three trillion you got nervous about. Yeah. So there's a quota for uh, where you. There's a certain amount that, that turns you from a liberal into a conservative. It's well, a, I think it turns you from a liberal into someone who questions. I'm not sure he really changed his philosophy, but he started asking more questions, which I think people in both parties should, just on like, how do you score this? How many years? You know, they play all these games by saying, we're going to have this program. It's only going to last one year. But you know how Congress works. Once they put programs in, I mean, we still have a 1905 tax on something, which we've never gotten rid of because they don't want to lose the money. And they don't know where it comes from and, and why. Right. right. Yeah. Because they want to spend it. Yeah. So what do you think? Do you think we can avoid a recession or, or don't you? I think we're. I think we're going to. Um, I think we're going to have a slowing economy. You know, I maybe would say we probably can't avoid a recession, but. Hopefully it won't be too draconian on people, but we've got to be able to route out, root out all this inflation, excuse me, to make sure that prices are going up because that's an indirect tax on people. You know? Well, I'm thinking of what happened in, uh, in 1981 and 82 when we had, uh, well, actually before that, 1980, we had um, – Prime rate was what sixteen percent. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah. in order to get out of it, we had to have <clears throat> we had to have a, a probably the worst recession we had had in a long time, and and it, we it did it did work, but boy, it was painful. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I what I see coming, and I just think it <laughs> it is really a uh, you're right about about who it affects, but it affects everybody, really. I mean, right. No, not... it does affect everybody, but I think it affects, you know, if you're, um, and I don't want to be pre- a pejorative, but if you're a liberal bleeding heart, you're always work- worried about the working class and, you know, the minority community, they're the ones who get hit first and the hardest with inflation. So if you're honest about it, you'll say, we got to stop it or we got to slow it down or we got to got to end it. But then you have your other 
incentives to spend money on these crazy programs. Like in the Buy, Build, Build Back Better plan, we're spending money to ensure that there are certain trees planted to make sure we have a balanced geography of trees around the country. I mean, come on, yeah. birds are dropping seeds all the time. That's never really going to work. And it's going to cost a lot of money and be a waste. And, and, you know, one of the big questions in my mind has been, it's always sort of been there, but it's recently really been there. And that is, how wh- how can, where is, it, it's, when you hear these people talk, it seems like they're living in an alternative universe. Yeah. I mean, they've got they've got a lot of the same sort of questions, but their answers are are entirely different. And um and it's been it's been very and it's been very puzzling to me because <clears throat> I see I see um a, a lot of I I mean I know a lot of really intelligent and um and uh, sincere uh, people that are in the liberal camp, and you just—I just wonder how they can come about, come to the conclusions that they do. And uh, I've—I finally decided that maybe the way that that they uh, offer the, the the answer to that question is basically that they uh, have. Uh, Access, their access to information is almost entirely controlled by the uh, by the standard media, uh, which are all uh, blind. I would say blind-eyed liberals, and yeah. that they're not seeing the same world that we see if we uh, if we're uh, in the conservative ring, and and that that to me has got to be about the only. The only way I can I can uh, I can think about how intelligent people could have such different, for example, um, they think you know we I think and I think a lot of a lot of people in my persuasion think that the uh, the uh, Afghanistan fiasco was uh, actually they think is a good thing because we we got out of there we're not in the Middle East anymore and. And you know when you when you look at the price we paid in terms of international prestige and power and uh, and and how the our uh, enemies are taking advantage of it, you just wonder how in the world anybody could make that that kind of a uh, conclusion. But yeah. if you if everybody if all the facts that you hear are uh, in favor of it. Then I guess that's how you that's how you come to that conclusion. Well, I, yeah. I sure would like to hear a better explanation than mine. Right. Well, I think that's part of it, Larry. I think another, and, and Tom might have a comment on this, but I think another thing is people on both sides have become so much insular. You know, we only have friends who are Democrats or Republicans, depending on your party. We only yeah. talk to each other. We go to the wow. same cocktail parties. You know, we basically reinforce each other with the same data points, and we never say, let's lift our heads up and see what's really going on, or let's try to hear other points of view and see if they make sense. I mean, I was flabbergasted that a Supreme Court Justice, 
who I always had a I have a great regard for the court. I think they're really smart people. I've seen them in action when I was at the Scalia Law School at George Mason for two years. And I thought, wow, the court, these court, they're brilliant people. And then we just recently had a justice who basically made things up. Yeah, and it was embarrassing. Error. I mean, it was just embarrassing. And then I thought, if everybody's like that, you know, maybe we really don't have smart people in positions of power, which raised another question, of course. Well, yeah, I'm going to say, here's what I'm going to make a point here, because I think you, you know, I kind of, on Twitter, I would use the phrase, that we are ruled by idiots, but I do think, <laughs> yeah, but I do think that you, you know, that the, we don't have a what well, I'm going to use the word a leadership class, yeah, a worthy leadership class. It's basically when you look at let's say the political class, your scientific class, your academia class, or even your business class, they don't contrast to what we've seen in the past. They're they have their own self interest. And I, and I would say it's a, what we're seeing is a failure, quite frankly, of that leadership class that yeah. we have, where they're not yeah. thinking of these things. I mean, let me just give one example. Then I know we got a quick break, but I think of, you know, I've always kind of wondered what would have happened. I mean, when Simpson and Escobols put together their 2010 plan, uh, and. And one of the things that was interesting is on one side of the equation, you know, there were some tax increases. On the other side, they, they basically lowered the capital gains. They, I mean, they lowered corporate taxes. They lowered, you know, income taxes, and they basically dealt with, you know, some of the tax issues, you know, the, you know, the tax uh, write-offs as the means to raise taxes. And I was thinking, what would have happened if we actually used that as the basis? Well, we'll I, uh, get the think, answer to that yeah. in a moment. We'll hold that thought because you're listening to the Resistance Hour with on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? <laughs> of course. I, I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow, Jinx. <laughs> Did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah. Pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget you, this uh, portion of the program will be brought to you by my latest book, um, America at the Abyss, Will America Survive? And you can pre-order it right now. On Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and LibertyHillPublishing.com. And don't forget, you can listen to this show anytime uh, during the week. I should say anytime at 1 o'clock and 7 p.m. every day at the BachelorNews.Airtime.Pro. And we'll now return back to Dr. Larry. Well, um, 
Tom, answer your question. Are are we going to survive or not? <laughs> You'll have to buy the book. <laughs> I won't be able to sleep tonight. Yeah. Well, <laughs> gee. <laughs> yeah. But but I guess the question. I mean, let me let me. I'm going to throw this out. Then I'll go back to the point I did before the break. Is you know, in fact, I do discuss this in my book. I said, you know, look at the World War II generation. They survived a depression. They fought a World War II. They built America up, and they were the leadership that designed the strategy and put it in action. The end of the Cold War without a nuclear war, and they left the place. They left the key to us baby boomers at a better place. You know, you know, Bill Clinton and George Bush. They inherited a much better world than, let's say that the greatest generation inherited, but they took over. And, and, and I make the point, I said, look, I mean, we went to the moon, jet airplane, you know, inter, you know, and international and cross-country travel by jet became a reality. Automobiles were going across the country, the ability to go from point A to point B. Um, I mean, we can, and even the beginning of the civil rights movement began in this era. And so, I compared that and contrast that. They're like, we haven't been back to the moon. Just give you kind of a, uh, you know, kind of a comparison. And today the NASA director is basically saying she's going to worry about the planet Earth and climate change. And I thought, you know, you know, what about this thing about going to Mars, going to the moon, you know, explore, you know, isn't that part of NASA? But that's the kind of leadership we're getting now versus what we got. Uh, you know, in a previous generation. And and, yeah. a, and the point I made was, you know, I don't know what your thought, Dave, on that, on the commission that, you know, Bowles, the Simpson Commission, but there were some good ideas one could have built around on a bipartisan basis. And I think we lost that opportunity to do exactly yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people didn't want to face up with the fact, nobody really wants to face up with the fact that we spend way more money than we should because having worked for a member of Congress, it's easy to say yes all the time because it's not your money. You know, we really have to, being an economist, we have to change the incentive. I once, I was in the leadership meeting with some people, including the former Speaker Gingrich, and we had a conversation, and I said, you guys want to balance the budget? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, it's going to radically change our democracy. And they said, what do you mean? I said, we put $435 million on a table on the floor of the House. And we tell all the members, if we vote for a balanced budget without raising taxes, each of you get a million dollars tax-free. They would do it. But they have no incentive to restrain themselves now other than kind of their moral, cultural, political values because – you don't get reelected. You don't enjoy a great life in Washington by telling people no. Everybody wants something. You say yes, it's a lot easier to keep your job and to get the power to be in the media, to be, you know, write books when you're done, become an ambassador, travel the world, and all you're doing is living off the wages of people who are really producing and creating things in America. At least in my opinion. This is a good. This is a, that's a good argument for term limits. Right, right. Because these the, people are more worried about getting reelected than they are about yeah. saving the country. But you can never have the people who make that decision 
make the decision because they would never be, they would never vote themselves out of office. I mean, it would take some unbelievable amount of courage for people to say, okay, I'll vote yes for term limits because they're going to be like their staff is going to whisper and go, no, you know, you're really smart. You should stay longer. We're making such a big contribution. You're so awesome. And it's like, well, guess what? You're not that awesome. (laughs) There are probably a lot more people in America who are more awesome than you are. If only we could get that that message out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think America generally believes that. They've always been suspicious of government since the revolution. You know, and even now you look at the polls, elected officials are always low. I remember teaching a class on special interest groups this spring at Mason, and I always talk about how used car dealers have a higher approval rating in many polls than members of Congress. And I feel bad for the members of Congress, many of whom I've worked with and know and like, but generally people don't trust them, and they have reason not to trust them because they haven't really performed generically across the board all that well to keep the country prosperous and safe and free and, you know, all the other things we think of as, as being an American. Is that part of what, what uh, Tom was talking about? Namely yeah. that it used to we used to have people that were more patriotic and more less self serving. Well, I think people were always self serving, but the stakes were never as high. You know, I where don't it's know. kind of think of World War Two. Well, but that the was stakes were pretty damn high. No, I mean it was you knew who the enemy was and what their ultimate objective was, but now the stakes aren't a nuclear war or having Nazis take over the world or having the imperial Japanese army kill everybody, et cetera, like they faced in World War II. But, you know, you do have the power of politics where you can take an average person with an average education who can run for office, lose, and then become a media talking head and make a lot of money. Yeah. You know, well, you couldn't do that 30 years ago. Yeah, we have a lot of that. And say things that don't really make sense. Well, th- yeah. we've always had a, a lot of people that didn't make sense. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I mean, look at look at Roosevelt and, and uh, Potsdam. Yeah. But, um, <clears throat> well, Tom, that sounds like a very interesting book. Yeah. I may have to read it. Yeah, you have to read it to find out, but... Well, I mean, the thing, the, the thing that always concerned me, because here's the other aspect that comes into play, this, is, you know, you know, we don't really have a same similar vision of what America is either. I mean, we, I don't know, I, I just had two guests on, you know, talking about the 1619 Project, and we got, you know, and the, and the thing is, you look at the reality, when you look at that 1619 Project, Basically, it paints America in a totally dark, black, uh, negative world that, as these two gentlemen on you know, my show uh, detailed, you know, wasn't the true history of America. It's only you know, that there was a much broader brush to look at. But when you got people like that putting this in curriculum into the schools, you have to be asking yourself, you know, do we even think that we're a part of the same country? You know, is there – have we – got to that point where a good portion of our leadership class uh, 
uh, it, it really even like governing us. I, I, I remember one of the great lines I said on Twitter is, you ever get the feeling that the people who govern us really hate us? And, and, I, and I think there's an element of truth just in that statement alone. Yeah. Well, I think in, in, in adding into that, there's a lot of people who govern us who I don't think appreciate us or value us or we don't confirm to what they think we should do. You know, and that's the yeah, essence of freedom. It's more like they feel sorry for us. Right. Or they're jealous or they're envious or they're, you know, they're unhappy people. And they want everyone to be unhappy. Yeah. In fact, there's 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 a there's a literature on that point. The people that think that you know how <clears throat> people that are uh, disruptive and and uh, violent and uh, antisocial are basically very people that are very unhappy, and they want everybody else to be unhappy. Because they are, they feel it's wrong. They 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 they've gotten a bad a bad deal, and by God, they're going to make it make everybody else suffer for it. Right, right. Yeah. I remember my 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 father was a first generation American. His father, my grandfather, came from Germany before the Second World War, after the First World War. And I remember when I was a young man, my father looked at me and said, "Just remember one thing." Nobody owes you anything. And I worry, when I, even with my, some of my undergraduate stuff, when I talk to them, they're like, well, I'm owed this, I'm owed that. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're not owed anything. And maybe part of that has been the helicopter culture where we've done so well as a country and we've been so materially productive that we've lost some of the national values of industriousness, working hard, innovation, you know, that, a lot of that's going on. I mean, I was reflecting the other day with somebody on when the hurricanes went to con- through Kentucky and destroyed a lot of people's lives. Yeah. There were Americans from all over the country that went there to help out. They were getting boxes of clothes, food, everything just sent in by normal people who wanted to help fellow Americans. And that's a shining example of America being generous and kind and really caring for each other. But we don't really hear a lot of that. All we hear about is this 1619 project, you know, divisiveness, how we all hate each other because of something we don't control, you know, the color of our skin, et cetera. And I think, you know, maybe it's not as bad as we think because real America is a lot better than, you know, the network media and these politicians who are constantly looking for reasons to try to get an advantage. I had the same reaction, um, and, and it's not just that that, that particular uh, calamity either. It's uh, every time there's there's a big uh, problem like a big hurricane or, or the, the tornadoes that, that uh, swept sweep through, uh, the, particularly the Midwest occasionally. You know, people always seem to rise to it. Amer- Americans are, at least uh, in the middle, in the flyover country, are very uh, generous yeah. with their time and their and their sympathy. I'm not so sure about the elite class. Yeah. I hope they are, but you just never know. I mean, you just well, never know. Yeah. I think their their concept of uh, of uh, being uh, merciful and <clears throat> helpful is to take 
all these poor boors that are uh, uneducated and, and un uh, that are unproductive and and show them how to live a better life by uh, by making them uh, subject to a lot of very intimate uh, government uh, concepts like how much you eat and what kind of, what should what kind of uh, medicine you should put in your body and and uh, and and how you should uh, you should treat treat your children and and you know let us take over and and show everybody how to live better and then we'll all be so happy yeah and then we'll and then that 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 will be the uh, that'll be the end of the uh, of the game. So we uh, you're listening to the uh, Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. Is I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And this last segment will be brought to you by uh, America at the Abyss. Well, America survived by yours truly, Tom Donaldson. You can pre-order this book on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. And LibertyHillPublishing.com. And and if you want to if you want an answer to the question, will America survive? Buy the book. And you can listen to this show every day on the Bachelor News. Airtime. Pro at one a.m. one p.m. and seven p.m. every day on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Okay, Larry. Well. Um, I think you're making a very good case for trying to find out whether we're going to survive or not. Um, yeah. I would be very surprised, however, if you said we weren't going to survive, <laughs> because that would make very bad reading. Then we would all, we would, the reviews would all review that no, we're not going to survive, and so people would be afraid to read it. <laughs> well. So, so I think you have to get your um, your question a little bit more uh, nuanced. You have to say something well, I, like, as I said, read the book and you'll get the We have two choices, to survive or not to survive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, know, you know, Larry, to your point and to Tom's point in his book, and I can't wait to read it to find out the answer. If I'm not on the show again, it was the wrong answer, and I'm moving to Montana. You know, um <laughs> And building my own cabin. But um, there are pockets, you know, I guess in other generations, although it's different, people are always challenged. And the one great thing about America is that we, even with all of our problems, all of the people who are confused or muddled in their thinking, there is a fundamental aspect of freedom that we all have somewhere in our GN. DNA that people can't seem to beat out. Yeah. You know, you look at all these big issues confronting us, people get pushed so far, but at the end they're like, what about my own personal freedom? Can I just live my life? Why are you telling me what to do? 
you know, it, you have to get kind of the, to the edge with that many times. But then there are the, and I think hopefully what will help save this country, don't mean to ruin the book for you, Tom, but will be this <laughs> commitment by people who really say freedom ultimately is really important. You know, we talk a lot more about, at least I hear in the conversations with students and on the media, a lot more talk about freedom versus totalitarian or authoritarian governments. And people seem to get that. They don't want to be like Cuba well, you, or the Soviet Union, yeah. et cetera. Well, here's an interesting but Here's the thing, because we did a, I did a study with a friend of mine, and, it's, and some of this is listed in the book, but it's worth looking at, is – yeah, I yeah we we asked two questions. We had it was different, but there was a, two questions we asked. One we asked, uh, do you love? Do you think American capitalism is a place where you can fulfill your dreams and move you know move up the ladder, and you know and fulfill your dreams? That was the thing. And the second one was, you know, do you think socialism today is at Sweden or Venezuela? And it was interesting in the conversation, you know, the the thing because we found. That more than half of the people who answered the question Sweden also stated that they liked capitalism. And we used the word Nordic capitalist. But and and I and I've talked to like a good, you know one of my associates. You know he runs his own little. You know he has a company he runs in addition to work with me, and he has a lot of young people. And he said you'd be surprised how entrepreneurial that they are. They want the ability to, you know, do their thing and fulfill their dreams and move forward. But there is always that line of security, and I think, you know, the healthcare debate over the past decade has kind of brought that into the open of, you know, there's there, the safety net aspect of the of the issue. And I'm reminded of the 19, you know, if you look at the welfare reform of the 1990s, uh, there were two things that came out of that. One, a limitation on the welfare itself. We, we put a limitation. This is what you're going to get. This is how far as we go. And on the other side, we recognize the fact we'll have a safety net. And yeah. I think that a lot of pe- people feel comfortable with that. And I, and I think that the party that can sit back and figure out a way to make both of those concepts work simultaneously will become the majority party. And, yeah. and, the, and the thing is, with our opponents, is quite frankly, they're all socialists. You know, they're not looking at the market side of the equation. Uh, no. Yeah, and they don't really so. understand it. I mean, because for some reason they're either inherited wealth or they're wealthy themselves or they haven't really lived the normal life, quote, unquote, normal lives of a lot of Americans who, you know, I just talked to a guy today who was telling me a story about about a, a student who came to this country from Guatemala. She escaped from her mobile home in Guatemala as the army were shooting her parents and crawled through a window, escaped, came here, is a legal citizen now, works full-time, goes to school full-time, makes all A's, loves America because it's the land of opportunity and the person's safe. And I was thinking, you know, most people today don't, have experiences like that you know they live a not a fairly easy lifestyle but they live which we all want our kids to do is have easier easier way than we did but they aren't like challenged to really understand how to make things work and be on their own and stand up and do things and be productive yeah well it's 
it's certainly uh, certainly some something to something to be said for that that yeah. analysis because uh, I was talking to somebody also uh, recently who was involved with a lot of uh, teenagers and uh, she was talking about how they don't seem to have any uh, concept of uh, what what it is that they're supposed to do they're 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 uh, expecting it, whatever it is, to be done for them. They they just don't seem to to uh, rise to the challenge. And my answer to that sort of uh, thinking, though, is uh, you ought to watch a uh, program called Shark Tank on television, and you see uh, that you see the entrepreneurial spirit in America is certainly not dead. Yeah, uh, because these people are coming up with all sorts of ideas that are uh, really, really, really in many cases, very, very imaginative, and uh, and they're they're willing to sacrifice and so on, it, and it doesn't seem to have any any particular um, uh, cult, cultural or ethnic or. It doesn't seem, it seems to be every you know there's people from every pretty universal, class yeah. in every part of the country. I mean, yeah. There's not, nothing you can't nail down some specific area or or uh, or ethnic group or or neighborhood or race or it, 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 they have all kinds of people. So that's my that's that's my answer to your question. You know, are we going to survive? It's these these kind of people that are going to help us survive. I think. Right, right. And 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 I'm just I want to maybe change the discussion for a moment because I've been personally thinking about this for a long time. You know, we've gone through the pandemic. We've learned a lot of lessons, and one of my biggest lessons is we shouldn't have public sector employees imposing rules on small business people and saying they're non-essential. In the future, every rule that's put on a business owner should apply to that public employee. They can't open. They don't get paid. The government employees don't get paid. Because I think they'll get a more reaction of how the real world's going and look for better solutions. But if you look at the incentives through the pandemic, and it was horrible, a lot of bad things happened. But if the government's continuing to function but working from home and being paid – but yet business people who use their own capital to try to advance themselves are told, you're not essential, you stay home, and they're not getting paid. There's no incentive for the public sector employees to change the rules. They're, still, they're not feeling anything. And like all of these mandates and stuff, everything is going to be, in my, my mind, is you know make it equal for everybody. If you think everybody needs to get this, you know, you, you get it too first, and you be a leader as opposed to I'm just going to dictate what I think the solution is, but I'm not going to apply it to myself or my family. Not like yeah. uh, Governor uh, Newsom who right. went out and <laughs> did, his, uh, did his thing without yeah. without uh, any of the uh, restrictions that he had imposed upon other people. And they have no shame, yeah. and that's the terrible part. It's like, it's not a big problem. I can go dancing without a mask when you're telling other people they can't. I mean, I live in Arlington County, Virginia, nice county, nice education in schools. 
They're thinking about raising property taxes on business people because they need more revenue. And I was like, wait a second. All these people you've closed for many months, you're now saying you're going to raise their taxes? You actually should be cutting their taxes because they've gone through a lot and try to help them come back rather than penalizing them for something that was not their fault. So you can raise your salaries, and they're talking about should the public employees get a salary of 1% increase or 5% increase or something in between. I'm like, they shouldn't get anything for one year. Well, they certainly didn't didn't uh, lose anything while they were waiting. Right. While everybody else was home doing, you know, trying to make 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 a life out of out of the homestead they didn't they didn't they they these people they kept getting paid the whole way through i mean uh and that of course brings up this this business of the uh teachers union which is a similar type of uh environment and uh and now the only good thing i see about that is that i i i'm convinced that there's much more support for school choice as a public policy now than there ever was before. Right. Uh, I hope that that's true. Yeah. Or, you know, like I'm from Chicago originally. It was when I was growing up there, it was a great town. It's really been hollowed out, unfortunately, because of their public policy positions again. But, you know, if the teachers don't vote 80% not to work, then just don't pay them. Yeah. You don't want to come to work? Guess what? You don't get paid. Right. Just like, like if Reagan. you work at McDonald's. You like don't, you don't show did. up at McDonald's, you you don't get paid. Well, and I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll, like I'll Reagan, take this a step Reagan did with the air. Yeah. With the air uh, right. Yeah. yeah. And you know, to, to me, there's a, you know, I'll take this a step further. If you're going to do remote training, you only get half paid. <laughs> yeah. So... Well, wait a minute. That's that's a hard thing to do <laughs> if you do it right. Well, I know. If you do it right. But if you're yeah. using it as an excuse not to get to the classroom, yeah, I would say. Right. I mean, there's a, and we've already seen the impact on learning on that. We've had discussions on their show just uh, with one of uh, Northern Virginia County's uh, school district where we've had inside information on this on on how this has played out. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. as a Virginia resident, it's disgusting what's going on in Virginia. And I hope the new elected governor, Youngkin, follows through on his commitments and cleans this all up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What can he do, though? Well, he can, well, he can do a lot of different things, but he can, like, you know, the interesting and most absurd part is that all the taxpayers, their money's being used to subsidize all this stuff. You know, my feeling is if you want to teach something, if you want to teach 1619 and say America's bad, just don't do it with tax dollars. I'm sure there are plenty of liberal foundations that will sponsor you to teach these classes after school. But when you're taking the tax dollars and the kids aren't learning writing, reading, arithmetic, science, the basic things everybody needs to be successful, and you're focusing on activism and guilt, you know, just don't do it with tax dollars. Well, yeah. if they didn't do it on tax, without, with tax dollars, they wouldn't do it at all. Right. That's right. I mean, 
you know, they spend thousands of dollars on these studies to bring people in to train the teachers on how not to be this way or that way. Oh, you know, man. that's money they should be used improving everybody's children's math scores because that's what they really need. Yeah, and how about doing that with uh, with the uh, I, I I'm just appalled at, at what I'm seeing in the military training. I mean, uh, here we're we're looking, we might be looking, and I'm afraid we are looking down the barrel of a of a of a new war. And what are we teaching our uh, military? We're taking them off duty, off uh, regular duty to teach them about uh, uh, critical race theory and, and and this other pap smear that they're that they're trying to. To feed, and, and and what kind of what kind of uh, warriors are these people going to make? You know, yeah. they haven't taught them anything. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just it's scary as hell. Yeah, and like, what are these people thinking who are saying this is a good idea? I mean, I don't really think I don't. I have never met. I mean, I've met a few people who are outright racist and terrible people, and I don't like them. I repudiate them. I think I'm a very generous person and a good person to treat everyone as equal as I can, you know, because I'm a religious guy and I think that's very important. But what are these people thinking? I remember when uh, the uh, joint chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said he wanted to understand white anger. And I'm like, no, you want to train men and women to be able to be war fighters, so if we're ever in a situation, they're focused on winning and not losing. Any minute you're taken away from that and focused on something else, you're undermining the credibility of our military, the effectiveness of our military. Well, and they are. I mean, yeah. that that is, is a necessary result of, of the kind of uh, policy that they've adopted. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, we're, we're we're almost out of time here, guys. Um, and uh, David, what's uh, what's your? How can people get a hold of you? And what do, what are you uh, promoting and so on? What do you want? Well, what do you want? To, what do you want our listeners to know about you? Yeah, I want your listeners to do. First off, I want your listeners to register to vote and to show up and vote in twenty 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 two. Because we have to have divided government if America is going to survive. If we go through another two years of undivided government, I think more bad things will happen, and they'll happen at an accelerated pace. So number one, register to vote and be sure you vote. Number two, I would say make sure that they're listening not only to your show, but practical people who have solutions and not consider folks, and I have a Ph.D., but we're so credentialed as a society that people think, well, he has a Ph.D., must make him smart. I meet a lot of people who have Ph.D.s who probably couldn't pump gas for a living. So, you know, you always got to be critical and be not suspicious, but be um, questioning when people of authority tell you things and make your own decisions. And those are the things I would like to leave people with tonight, Larry. Well, that's uh, that's a good good start. Tom, final words? Yes, I'm going to be, uh, I am, first of all, number one, I'm going to 
be a self-promoter, uh, and you can get the America at the Abyss, uh, where Americans survive, uh, at BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.com, and also Liberty Hill Press Publishing.com. So, well, um, everybody ought to go out and get that. Is there any other way to get it? Can you order it through Amazon, for instance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can get Amazon, Barnes and Noble, both. You can pre-order it right now, and it'll be available at the end of the month. But you can pre-order it right now. So, oh, so it, it is. So it's not available. Uh, yeah, but you can pre-order it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Be the first one on your block with the book. Okay. We want everybody to, to be sure and do that, and. Um, I think it's time for us to say, God bless America, and boy, do we need it. Good evening. (laughs) 